0: FYI, and I don't mean fake news. This podcast contains huge spoilers. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode three hundred and forty seven of the podcast that goes snicked, snicked, I'm your host, Jason Venable, and this is a b-b-b-bonus episode, a little history lesson for you, um, probably gonna be pretty short, but I wanted to briefly touch on, uh, history of the Marvel Universe number one, and a couple of other things, um, they're kinda history-related, I think you'll see what we mean when we get there, um, but... Yeah, definitely wanted to talk about History of the Marvel Universe number one. It's going to kind of be hard to talk about as far as like our normal format because you can't really synopsize this because it kind of is a synopsis. I mean, in all senses of the word, um, it is basically a big old fat summary of like decades and decades of Marvel Comics, kind of putting everything in a basic order as far as cosmology goes, um, looking at the grand history of the Marvel Universe, and it's really cool, and there is a brief appearance of, a. our boy Wolverine, I mean, like on the last panel, on the last page. But, um, you know, he is in there, and I wanted to to mention it. But also, I've been really excited about this book, um, mostly because of Javier Rodriguez. So, um, I guess let's get into it. And I think what I'll do, kind of like we did with Grand Design. You couldn't really synopsize that either, right? Because it was, in essence, a retelling and it's like, every sentence is an event and a plot point in a story. So, I mean, for me to go through History of the Moral of the Universe, number one, and try to summarize it, I would basically just read it to you, and <laughs> nobody wants that, including myself. Um, but maybe I'll just pick out some, like, highlights, um... Or some things I just thought were really cool or interesting, or maybe I didn't know, or, or I forgot, or just kind of liked the way they did it. Um, so, yeah, History of the Marvel Universe number one, written by Mark Wade, pencils and colors by Javier Rodriguez. Alvaro Lopez is the inker, uh, VC's Joe Caramania is the letterer. And the cover is by Steve McNiven, Mark Farmer, and Sonny Go. Lots of variants. Lots of pretty cool variants that I saw out there, including um, a really nice one by Mr. Rodriguez himself. But I went ahead and got the the regular one because I really like it. Um, it's basically Galactus with some Kirby Crackle. And he's kind of standing in the back and holding his hand out with more Kirby crackle and kind of out of his hand inside the crackle or like um, Marvel characters and it kind of looks like it might be part of a connecting cover or you know maybe it's just crowded I'm not sure so I don't know if it'll if it'll bleed into another image I can probably look that up <laughs> but yeah I'll, I'll wait to be surprised I think the next one comes out in a couple of weeks so I don't have to wait very long Um. So, in, in, Foture foeture, that's not a word. In focus or feature on this cover are a floating head of Fing Fang Fu. We have the Rawhide Kid. We have Thor, not, not, sorry, not Thor, Odin. But Allah la the uh, 10,000 PC Avengers. So, back when he was, when he had the hammer, and was fighting, so I guess, I don't know, was was he Thor when he had the hammer? I think he's still Odin. (laughs) Um, we have the Sphinx, we have James Hallett, a.k.a. Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine, we have Super Scroll's head, we have the Silver Surfer, we have the Watcher, and we have a female member of the Nova Corps with a red cape. I don't really know entirely who that is, to be honest. Um, anyway it's a really cool cover by mr McNiven. and looks really nice um, definitely worth taking a gander at and I gotta say open it up I love the title page it's very bright and colorful lots of pinks and purples and blues uh, the letters in, in yellow and black um, kind of slanted line design like almost like the the Like a credit, right, to like a TV show or a movie, and everything's like shooting diagonally across the page. Um, (laughs) it's a weird thing to to start with, but it's (laughs) when you're describing a book, but it's a really nice, really cool, just nice, neatly colored title page, um, that gives all the credits and stuff. So, I do want to mention also, uh, Chris Lau as designer, so he probably has something to do with this very page I'm talking about, so you know probably a good place to mention him also you know one thing I didn't think about when I was looking at this um there's listed a research team which I'm sure helped read a bunch of back issues and and put some notes together and help uh Rodriguez and Wade put their timeline together um and you know choose the things that they want to focus on Because even though this is going back to the beginning of time, it's not all old stories, right? And we'll we'll talk about that, I guess, as we get to a couple of things. But um, anyway, the research team is Jeff Christensen, Anthony Cotaletta, or Cotaletta, I don't know, uh, Kevin Garcia, Daron Jensen, Rob London, Michael Sullivan, Jacob Rougemont, Stuart Vandal, and Brian Overton. So kudos to those guys for however they helped out. I mean, they got a mention out here, so I'm sure it was probably pretty important. Um, so the story is framed at the end of time, and Galactus and Franklin Richards are observing like the final entropy of our universe. And Franklin's like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry on, right?" And Galactus is like, "Yeah, probably." He goes, "Well, then I want to remember," and Galactus is like, "Remember what?" And Franklin's like, "Everything." And then so Galactus is like. Sits down, uh, crisscross cross applesauce, and Franklin's kind of floating around him. And he's like, very well. And he goes into it. That's kind of how <laughs> our story starts. Um, it's a really cool two pages. You know, Rodriguez doing his own colors is always a work of art. And here, everything is like red, blue, and purple toned, you know, with a black background. Until the very last thing, when we see Galactus sitting down and Franklin kind of floating behind him, and it's just a silhouette in white. And the way the... It's not really panels per se, but the way the panels wouldn't kind of lay out is based around the shape of Galactus's helmet, particularly like the little uh, diamond fins that he wears that kind of come out of his helmet. Um, Just a really cool two pages. Just visually very, very striking. Um, Really cool. I mean, so it ties in, like you know, the, uh... uh, What are they called? Not the constructs. The, um... Abstracts. Um, kind of like, you know, Eternity and Chaos and all that. And and into the Infinity Gems. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting that I thought... Kind of the first thing that jumped out at me a little bit. Um... They call the Infinity Gems the building blocks of the universe. Which definitely makes sense. They don't really allude to them coming from, like, um... They say that the gems are kind of birthed from the, the maelstrom of creation, they say. Six gems of unspeakable power. Now, in my flashback read-along that I'm doing, you know, right now we're in 1991 in the flashback episodes. And in the read-along I've been doing, I've been reading the build-up to the first Infinity Gauntlet story, which, of course... Uh, had had like a Thanos like I don't know if it was a graphic novel I read it on on Marvel Unlimited so I don't know if it was a graphic novel or just like an oversized comic or whatever or two comics I think it was um with kind of Thanos conquest and then of course his story of his resurrection and the issues of Silver Surfer uh kind of his collecting of the initial gems before he gets ready to build the gauntlet and and go into that story um And there, they very much talk of the origin of the gems as, like, this first being, who kind of, they refer to it, Jim Starlin refers to it as kind of a form of cosmic suicide, but even when he killed himself, his spirit or his will couldn't die, and it broke up into these six gems. Now, I don't know if that's still canon. Whenever you see the gems pop up now, it's never mentioned, and it's not mentioned here either. The gems just kind of seem to come into existence out of, like, the storm, the creation storm, right? Um, these cosmic swirling energies create these abstract beings and also the Infinity Gems. Um, so there's no mention of, like, a supreme god kind of first being that sparked creation, you know, with his death. And then also out of that, the Infinity Stones. Now... That could still work. There's nothing in here that contradicts that. I just found it interesting because that's really the only time I remember hearing it, it was in this particular build-up. It's kind of this initial introduction. Now I don't remember. My memory's foggy. Maybe maybe next time Al's on, I'll ask him, or I'll, I can tweet him, or whatever. Or maybe he'll listen to this um, and and answer. But I don't remember like an Adam Warlocks early appearances, when they first, like, very first introduced, like, the soul gem and stuff like that, if that ties into, like, a supreme creative being or not, um, but once we get past the 90s, I don't, I'm not gonna say for sure, it's never brought up again, I just don't remember it, like, the most recent Infinity War, Infinity Warps, so all those kinds of stories, no mention of the gems being tied back to, like, one entity, at least that I remember. I could have missed it or I could have just, you know, slept and had a couple of bourbons since then and don't remember. But, um, anyway, I just thought it was interesting, kind of the lack of mentioning that here. And I'm kind of curious if that's still, like, if that's just kind of, if the stories evolved from there and they just don't really talk about it or if that's actually been retconned away. And I don't really know. So if anybody wants to share, shed some light, um, feel free. Um, also, didn't know that the elders of the universe were. I mean, it makes sense that they're like each one is the last of their own. Actually, I think I remember that now. It, anyway, um, and we have you know some X Men related stuff like the Macron cri- crystal, the Macron crystal, uh, the uh, Akati, the big space fish that eventually get kind of subjugated by the brood. We have you know Eternals and Watchers and all that fun stuff and Galactus, as he kind of comes into creation, um, you know, the creation of the Earth, and how that relates to Asgard, and, you know, scrolls and Eternals, and Shi'ar, and, um, the, uh, uh, uh the Deviants, I didn't know the Deviants were tied to Lemuria, which eventually becomes like, uh, foe of Atlantis. But then we get an interesting part where we bring in, like, a a pretty new story, which is the prehistoric adventures. Like, they get included in this very earliest history, you know, with all these really old stories, like, the 60s and 70s. Um, so that that was kind of cool of Wade and Rodriguez to kind of, you know, pull in all the current mythos as well, that goes back to the beginning of time. And, yeah, so then we talk about the Cree and, uh, you know, the, the kind of magic, the book uh we have the Varnay, the first vampires, the Dark Home, right is that what it's called? The the book, right? Um, you know, First Peoples, uh we have the birth of Thanos, Fing Fang Foom, um, you know, King, Apocalypse, the Sphinx, Diablo, um, you know, a secret order that goes back as old as the hand, and um you know, just a bunch of really cool stuff. And the art, man, the art and all of this is so good. I, just, I can't sing Javier Rodriguez's praises enough on um, just how really cool this art is and, and the interesting kind of layouts and uh, just the stuff he does is so brilliant. Um, I cannot say enough. Now we have here, we're talking about the um, origin of the Nova Corps. There is a guy who's flying and leading the Nova Corps with a red cape is kind of like the leader. Um, but I'm pretty sure the one on the cover is definitely a female. And this one is definitely a male. Not that, that matters, but if they're trying to tie that in, it doesn't quite match. Um, and then, yeah, when we, even, like, the Master of the World was cool artistically as, I, as Javier kind of shows his evolution from the, I didn't even know he was like a and a prehistoric fur baby at one point and gets evolved by that machine where he lived and it shows his evolution in like... One, two, three, four, five, 7 little, like, pink panels that, like, lead from his previous form to his current form. And that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, there's lots of really good stuff in here. Uh, baby Thanos is just plain adorable. Um, <laughs> you know, um, obviously talking about the Titans... Um, you know, old magic with the Black Knight and Merlin and um, Morgana Le Fay. Um, And then here, I didn't know this. So, the Destroyer was originally built in case the Celestials ever came back to judge creation again. And so, Odin and the Council of the Godheads, which are like Zeus and... You know, other gods from other cultures, like all the pantheons together, like have representatives. Kind of uh, the idea of a council of godheads is really cool. Um. Anyway, so they, with the power of all of the gods of all the pantheons, invent the destroyer to protect creation in case these celestials ever deem us unworthy again. So I, I didn't know that, but it's a cool idea. Um, we find out the Atlas Foundation was. You know, originally tied to world domination. I'm assuming that still applies to like, not implies, like the world domination part, but the atlas, I'm assuming it's the same atlas as like Agents of Atlas and stuff like that. Um, we learned about Mulasco and the Ancient One and Dracula and Silver Surfer and the original Hellfire Club and Mr. Sinister back in the day. Um, that's kind of where we end. We go to the Old West and we Have the Rawhide Kid and the original Ghost Rider, and then we see up in Canada, a kid running away from home who will eventually turn in to, let's see, I'll actually read this part. So north in Alberta, Canada, the wealthy John and Elizabeth Hallett parented a son. The frail boy, James Hallett, was unaware his true father was their abusive groundskeeper, Thomas Logan. Despite his weak and timid childhood, James would grow up to become fierce and strong beyond imagining. And there's three kind of panels without borders. They're kind of broken up by trees in the forest. And the first one is kind of a zoomed out shot of of James running away from his house like in his 90, like he did in Origin. And then we have him kind of shedding that. As he crosses the tree into the next kind of middle panel. And it's him kind of jumping over some fallen trees. And he's in his classic uh, A-frame undershirt. um, And some pants. But he's still like in black. Like shadow. And then we cross another set of trees into kind of like the third part of the panel. Um, And it's a little bit older Logan. Still in the classic kind of uh, white undershirt. But you can see more of his face and his hair as he's kind of dodging around a tree and you know his breath is ice icy in the cold um so that's a cool little page kind of in the story and kind of see where we go next um and then we get the annotations which is basically one two three four oh wait sorry one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve Thirteen pages of like reference notes and where you can find all the stories um, you know as they were originally told where all this information was culled from where these researchers got all their notes right this this research team as they read through comics and it's cool because you see a lot of really old like art and some more current art and so it's cool that they kind of pulled all this stuff from different eras because you know, as history goes on, as comics go on, how we look back at the Marvel history has changed over the years, and it's really cool that they incorporated all of that together. Um, There's also just a really neat snapshot, kind of in a few pages, to see lots of different eras of art, um, and how they kind of compare, you know, from colors to art style, to... Know how many words might be on a a panel? Um, it's just really interesting to see kind of all of it side by side. Um, it's really cool. So, a very interesting book that was lovely to behold. Um, I mean, the story is not really so much a story as it really just is kind of a recording of how the Marvel Universe is coming into being, and so that's really, really cool, really interesting. So, I would definitely give. History of the Marvel Universe. A high recommendation. Um, yeah, we'll go ahead and rate it. I'll, I'll say it's a six out of six claws. Because I love it. I love the art especially. Just um, the way it's all organized. So, we're going to move into like a different kind of history. Looking back also at early Marvel history. Um, you know, There's an iconic book that came out you know years ago called Marvel's and recently we got Marvel's epilogue number one um, and let me skip back to the credits here real fast um, of course by the original Marvel's team of writer Kurt Busiek and Art Alex Ross with um, letters by John Roswell and Richard Stockings of Comic Craft. And the cover is also by Alex Ross. And, man, this cover does not disappoint. Um, It is Jean Grey in her black dress floating above a crowd with an almost Phoenix-esque force of power around her. And, man, it's just... It's really cool the way that the cover just comes to life alex ross style and it just looks really great um cannot say enough just how kind of awesome it looks and you know um shoot i lost my note here because it's a very specific issue of uncanny x-men um crap i wrote it down because i already looked it up where'd i put it Damn it. Uh, And so on, it's the classic Christmas issue. And, you know, they go, like, to Rockefeller Square and the Sentinels attack. And that's kind of the whole backdrop of the story. It's kind of expanding on people observing that. And I cannot for the life of me find where I wrote down the damn issue number. Um, you know what? (laughs) Way to maybe fix this really fast. So let's go into Marvel Unlimited. We're going to search Uncanny X-Men. And we're going to scroll way down here to the early days. And we're going to find that issue number. Because, um, let's see here, it would have been back there, back there. Before all that, there was an issue where... I can't remember what the cover mostly looks like, I think. Um, It's going to be back right around here. Crap. Um, I think it's 98. I think it's 98. I know it's before 100. Oh, come on, Mark. Yeah, 98. My gosh, I'm sorry. I know I just completely destroyed all my cred. But um, anyway, so yeah, so the backdrop of of Uncanny X-Men 98 and kind of the original reporter from the Marvel story, um, he's at the square with his family, um, his his daughters, and he's looking at the Christmas tree. And off panel, there's the, hey, bub, can I get a, a light? And he's like, oh, I don't smoke. And Wolverine's like, oh, kind of smelled like you do. <laughs> Which is funny, I don't know if he smells that or smells like lung cancer or what with his heightened senses. But it's cool, he's in his black shirt and his jacket with a fur collar. And he's got his red scarf on, just like he does in issue number 98. And um, he's kind of walking around the square. And, uh, you know, the reporters are, and he's, he's, he's not worried about heroes or... trying to get a story. He's just enjoying Christmas time with his daughters while his wife is at home writing a book or something. I don't remember. Um, Anyway, we get a nice recreation on the first page of X-Men 98. And it's really cool because in the back there's even like a reprint of that page so you can compare what Ross does compared to that page. A very similar layout. Basically in the crowd he adds the marvel's characters the reporter and his uh his two daughters um you know and also it was like maybe nick fury in the crowd <laughs> which i don't remember him being in the first one let's look at that panel again and see sorry i'm doing a lot of skipping around probably, it's probably kind of annoying um oh <laughs> completely wrong Nick Fury is totally in that original panel, so there you go, um, so yeah, you know, the X-Men kind of standing in front of the tree, and then, you know, the Sentinels attack, and the whole thing is like, this, the, the reporter wants to get his daughters away, but they're like, whoa, awesome, and they want to take pictures, and so they start taking pictures of, like, the X-Men, and the fighting, we get a really awesome page of Storm, um, She shows up in like all white lightning and then just her kind of standing there and the electricity is really rad. And of course she flies off and so more, more fighting the Sentinels and the daughters are all into it and they want to ask the cops questions and then a Nova shows up, or I guess the original Nova, Richard Ryder. This is right around his debut. Shows up and like, hey, I'm the new hero. Can I help? And they're like, uh, no, I think we're okay. Um, and the daughters take pictures of him. So we get, And then he kind of remembers, right, the reporter remembers all the things he talked about from the original Marvel story and just how kind of cool it is. And his daughters have kind of caught the bug and share his interest. And, you know, then we can go into kind of, uh, you know, some kind of interviews and notes with Visiak and Ross about Marvels and then the epilogue and all that stuff. Um, It's obviously beautifully rendered, and the story's kind of sweet, but there's not really a whole lot to it. It's pretty short, like 14 pages, I think, is the actual story, Um, and a lot of pages with big art, so it kind of makes the story go even a little bit faster. Um... And nothing wrong with it at all. And like I said, I mean it's Alex Ross interior art is amazing and gorgeous and everything you would expect. The story's kinda eh, it's there. You know? Nothing particularly special, but definitely nothing nothing bad at all. Um it doesn't quite have the same and maybe that's where I'm I'm feeling a little bit of disappointment, because the first time you read Marvels is done and presented in such a way you kind of feel that initial wonder right in that that the same thing that the reader or I'm sorry the same thing that the characters in the books felt about what was going on you as a reader kind of feel that same stuff and that's really cool and this is a nice story and a sweet story but it's kind of missing that sense of awe. And even though you get to see, like, the daughters experience some superheroing for the first time, and even though it's my beloved X-Men, I don't know, it just doesn't quite have the same magic to it. And so, I think in that, I don't know. um, I think think it's hard to read the story on its own, without the context of the of the experience of the previous work. And when the previous work is so epic, it's hard for a follow up many, many years later to not disappoint a little bit. And that's probably not entirely fair, but maybe also, you know, kinda probably knew that was gonna happen when they started doing it. And that, you know, maybe they weren't even trying to quote unquote live up to it. I don't I don't know. I'm I'm kinda getting lost in what i want to say there but um all in all an enjoyable story if you enjoy the original marvels or if you just like art you should buy it (laughs) or at least read it you know if you want to wait for marvel unlimited that's fine too but i mean at some point do yourself a favor and check it out just for alex ross but um i think overall i would give marvel's epilogue number one it says number one i think it's just a one-shot though i could be wrong don't yell at me if I'm wrong but um, <laughs> I think it's just just a one shot um, but yeah I would give it a solid 4 out of 6 clause because that art is, is 6 worthy and the story is you know above average <laughs> so um, yeah I think a solid 4 out of 6 clause borderline on 5 um, but yeah that's Marvel's epilogue it's really good so another kind of history related comic we're going to talk about is marvel comics presents number seven the follow up to one of the hottest comics of 2019 so far which is number six which invented uh witcherine um yeah i don't know i mean let's let's talk about this comic and i'll talk about how that maybe relates to the other um so Marvel Comics presents number 7. We're going to focus on Wolverine the Vigil Part 7, which is, of course, written by Charles Soule, penciled by Paolo Sicchiera, inks by Oren Jr., colors by Frank Diamarda, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, our cover is by Arthur Adams and Federico Blee. We have a really cool cover. I don't know if I've seen a lot of Art Adams' Iron Man but here, Iron Man is front and center and about to shoot the reader with his repulsor rays. And then behind him are Wolverine and the Winter Soldier. So, of course, that's our three stories. Um, behind them, they're standing on some rubble. Um, and their, their back, the backdrop is a lot of green and yellow Kerbal Crack... Kerbal... What's wrong with me? Kirby Crackle. Um, it's a really cool cover. I actually like it quite a bit. Um... Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Um, So in our story, last time we were introduced to Wolverine's daughter, um, who he had kind of with a fling with the, um, the lady he was fighting this demon with, the, the magic witch lady. Um, and then he met her, but then she disappears. So now we're in 2001, New York. Now, obviously, um, it's right after 9-11. Um, And remember, the truth shows up at the worst moments in humans' history. So Wolverine's basically been traveling from tragedy to tragedy, trying to find the truth so he can try to find his daughter. And so we see just this page of, like, New York streets kind of with shattered car windows and ash. And um, Wolverine is kind of crouching, kneeling in the ash and disappointed that he can't find his daughter. Um, And that's his big hunt, his big mission. And then we get a double page spread of like him in the middle and out from him, kind of like a spider web of scenes of him just going place to place and fighting and drinking and saving people, but never finding either the demon or his daughter. Um, And we get a scene of him like in a, it looks like the uniform from uh, the Enemy of the State era. Um, and he's just continuing to go through and fight stuff but he, he starts getting older and this is where I start having some questions about how or if this fits into continuity and not that it needs to but I think that maybe could have some impact um, yeah so he fights more also drinks more and apparently he's not eating very well Um, you know we see a scene of him like in a pool of blood and a Chinese star sticking out of his head. Um, see him drinking with a big old beard, and beard is going everywhere down his beard, down his short shirt. And then, like, just an emaciated uh, Wolverine, uh, very skinny, very old looking, uh, with a big old beard and crazy hair as usual, and just kind of looks just kind of old and out of it. But um, not an old man Logan kind of way. Almost like a... <laughs> I can't really put my finger on exactly why, but there's, I almost get like a Cheech and Chong vibe <laughs> from from this this design. Um, and it's interesting because these are like diagonal panels across a two-page spread. And it kind of shows the timeline. So in the top left corner is Wolverine standing in his uniform with his arms crossed. And then the bottom right corner is this kind of old just really, really malnourished Wolverine, Um, and then all the action in between, kind of showing him fighting and drinking and kind of just losing his way. Um, And that's kind of where we end up, and then we see in 2008, Mumbai, um, that's where he finally finds him. He finds the truth, and he finds his daughter, Um, who's still just kicking ass and using her magic bone claws and, and sending the truth back through his portal. And she beats him and then she sniffs and says um, I don't know if you're here to kill me or here to die. But either way you should know who I am. Um, you're Logan. My mother is Sylvie of the Clan Darkness. You think I'm your daughter? I'm not. My people gave me no true name. They decided I didn't need one. They call me... Metal rain to rain, I just use rain. It means nothing. Um, I really do like her design. It's almost like an Asgard kind of armor. Uh, you can maybe do without the boob armor, but but then like this kind of physical like workout fighting stuff. She's got a sash around her waist, so it's not not seen crotch focus, which is nice. Um, and then obviously got like, kind of the the fighter wrappings around her forearm. It's a cool look overall um, and Sikiera draws faces really well, so it's really fun to see her face. In fact, I meant to say on the other page, actually probably my least favorite part about his art is when he puts Wolverine in the uniform. Because his strength is kind of more, I guess, quote-unquote common folk in facial expressions and in body language. And I don't know, not to say that his uniforms look bad but it's just, it kind of stands out as not being as real or as emotionally attached as all the other art he's drawing. Um, So anyway, she basically says that her mom was silly that Wolverine knew. um, You know, her her family fights the truth um, and she's obligated to do it and that's all that I am. I'm nobody's daughter, not yours, not anybody's. Now, the way she says that obviously she does have a biological father somewhere so it's not like she's denying that wolverine and how could she i mean she has this claws right we all know it's wolverine's daughter but she's saying for all intents and purposes you're not my dad don't try to be my dad i am the nothing queen so i guess she's gonna have a code name that's it um you know where's your crown queen nothing um And every time the truth returns, I need to be too. No time for distractions or family or love or fathers. Um, And she kind of like, you know, puts her head on her hand in a panel that looks just oddly like how, not in a bad way, but just odd how much it looks like a Todd McFarlane panel. Um, Just with her facial expression. It looks like, like a Mary Jane panel looking down and you no, know, not feeling great about the situation and so she goes to logan you know and gets closer and says you found nothing here logan no resolution no family no atonement nothing and he just stands there and she says say something damn you and she yells and she pops her claws and she's like i just spent eight years looking for you in the worst places in the world you think I was hunting you. I wasn't. I was hunting the truth, which is maybe kind of a half-truth in and of itself. Um, But he says, we're not going to wait for it anymore. We're going to go find it where it lives. We're going to hunt it and kill it, and then we'll both be free. And they kind of almost like lock claws in a way, Um, and then to be continued. So the art is beautiful. Um... Especially, like I said, the facial expressions, the body language, the interaction of the characters. Secure just nails it. Um, and the action's pretty good too, right? Um, The story is definitely more interesting. Um, I- I'm enjoying it. And I like the way that she's like, I don't have time for you. Whoever you think I am or need me to be or want me to be, I can't do it. And I can't let you be anybody to me. Like, I can't afford it. Um, it's, an, you know, maybe an old trope, but it comes off here as very real and interesting, and, and Soul writes it pretty well. And, you know, I've always kind of portended that uh, Soul or his strength is in writing books with less characters. And this has turned out to be a really strong story so far. I'm um, really enjoying it. Now the way that it's progressed and the way that he's locking things into like an actual like publication timeline, like eighty stories took place in the eighties and then ten years later there's ninety stories and now Wolverine's almost by himself in a I mean, it doesn't say like it's post X Men world, but you know, if if it's been a solid ten years since we saw the X Men kinda in their prime you got to assume they're all older and, you know, he's by himself running around. And so putting it in real time is problematic, I think, because, because you know, it's problematic in that it ignores kind of the sliding timeline you have to apply to comics for them to work. But also, I think it's problematic in another way, because if the story is not a continuity, then does all the hype around... The daughter of Queen Nothing reign as she is. Are people still going to pay 50, 60 bucks an issue for her first appearance? If it's just like an alternate story, like an out-of-continuity story? I mean, I don't think it makes a story any less worthwhile. That's not what I'm saying. and not not trying to be a continuity whore in that way. I'm just wondering, because I've been just with interest kind of tracking how issue six has been doing, and it's staying pretty steady at, you know, a very high dollar comic, and I don't know, I mean, I think we have an exception, I mean, so, so normally what would happen, right, uh, under normal circumstances, you have a really cool character introduced, and gets hyped, uh, especially maybe one that was not, Publicized is coming, and so it kind of maybe catches people by surprise. Add that to the fact, and I didn't talk about this last time because I don't really know about it. Um, but talking to my comic shop owner, Jake, over at Awesome Comics, a lot of issues to number six were shipped damaged. Like, like they just, a lot of them, in apparently was not unique to my store, like a lot of comic shops in a lot of places got a lot of damaged copies. So that meant that print run, you know, not only not being hyped when it came out, but also having a lot of issues they couldn't sell, um, made were pretty hard to find comics. So that played into kind of the uh the value speculation as well. But you know, it's really curious because I think the expectation is, oh Wolverine's got a new daughter and she'll probably be a pretty big character, but if this is just kind of a one-and-done out-of-continuity story, you know, can that comic sustain at $50, 60 I don't know. But then the maybe counterpoint to that is Spider-Gwen, right? Um, introduced in an alternate universe. But man, that comic's still hard to find and expensive if you want her first appearance. Think a little bit different, and we'll have to maybe see how the... How this turns out for Queen, Queen Nothing, but um, you know, obviously, Spider Gwen continues to kind of come back to our universe and, and stay kind of involved in our story with you know, Spider Verse stories and how that kind of continues to do its own thing, and then the movie. Um, so, a lot of things kind of keeping uh, Spider Gwen's stock afloat. And I don't know, maybe something similar happens to this character regardless of the continuity. You know, maybe there's more stories in this timeline, or maybe she comes to the 616. You know, again, I've heard nothing like that officially says, oh, this is an out of continuity story. I'm just wondering from the timeline if it's possible to be in continuity. And maybe it could be, right? Um, You know, Wolverine's been around that long. I don't think putting him in certain decades is problematic at all i think it's the other characters that got put you know in the 80s and the 90s specifically i mean they can't just keep going forever um anyway i really enjoyed this comic notice visually um you know speculation about about the first appearance of Witcherine aside. aside. um I'm going to give this story kind of probably five out of six claws. Now, we also have an Iron Man story by Ryan North and Rod Rice, whose art I love, Um, where he kind of fights the villainous symbolic representation of subprime mortgage loans. Um, It's an interesting kind of commentary. I don't know if it's necessarily a great comic story. Um... Well, you know, there you go. Then we have a Winter Soldier story by uh, D.C. Pearson and Alessandro Vitti, where he's in the 60s running some missions, and maybe or maybe doesn't have sympathy for some... I don't I don't really actually know what goes on here. But it ends up he goes back to his, a neighborhood he used to haunt, and he convinced or bullied or threatened or blackmailed a mayor into building this cool, like, community urban park. Um, I don't really know what actually happened in the story. It's kind of hard to follow which of the non-Winter Soldier characters were who. Um, so I don't know if who he was trying to kill was the same person he didn't kill at the end. Or if it was a different... You know, I don't really know. But anyway, that's Marvel Comics Presents number 7. And that is going to be our episode. I actually went a lot longer on this than I thought. So that's almost... not quite a full, like, hour episode, but much closer than I anticipated. So, anyway, that's that. So, some Marvel history for you in various degrees. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, we're continuing to march to episode 350. I think next up, if, like I'm suspecting, there's some Wolverine characters and Absolute Carnage, I know Ethan was probably going to hope to read that, so I will maybe maybe get him to come on and talk about that next episode. And then, you know, we're three fifties right around the corner of weapon X. So that should be pretty great. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it guys. So as always with the podcast, that goes, snicked, please like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snickcast. You can leave an iTunes review, um, Facebook shares and Twitter, Twitter, Twitter retweets are always appreciated. Um, Yeah. So, I guess until next time, that's going to do it. Hugs and snicks, everybody. Bye-bye. And snap.